Everybody keeps asking about uh, One Life, One Chance podcast merchandise. I finally released t-shirts and crewneck sweatshirts. You can go to www.h2omerch.com and you can pre-order right now. It's a worldwide international shipping. Sizes small to 5X. If you really want to support the podcast, is the best direct way to do so. So I appreciate that very much. You can pick up that merch today. Thank you. Over the years, I've learned how to uh, <laughs> use a version of self-compression on my own voice. For real? No, I'm just okay. Kidding. It sounds good though. Um, <laughs> welcome to the One Life One Chance podcast. I'm your host Toby Morris. Today, I have a very, very special guest. Came straight here from his house. Uh, I appreciate that, Mr. Trevor Keith. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is awesome to have you here. Um, I usually don't really date these things because I don't know when they're going to come out, but this should come out soon. But today is election day, so it makes me happy that you're here because I don't want to watch TV or look at anything political today and maybe look at it tomorrow. We'll see what happens. Me neither. And actually, I think it was strategic that uh, I managed to brave the freeways between Vegas and Los Angeles uh, before there was any... Uh, rioting or scary, uh, you know, blockades of uh, <laughs> yeah. four-wheel drive vehicles and Trump flags, or you know, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever side you're on. We yeah. I managed to avoid any of that uh, drama you made for today, it. so I made it straight from Vegas to my house. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. Yeah, um, we have a lot to talk about. I have a lot of my notes. This is, if you're not familiar with the podcast, I like to like you know get thorough about you know what inspired you, which now inspires me and a lot of people in the world through your music and everything you've done. So we're going to take it back. You were, you were born and raised in uh, Vic- Victorville, California? Is I was actually, uh, well, my formative years were spent in Victorville. I was born in Encino, California. Oh, shit, okay. Um, and Is that my- a movie? <laughs> Encino <Something>? Man? <laughs> yes, here we go. <laughs> With Polly Shore? <laughs> yes. It's in the valley. Um, both of my parents are... Uh, native Californians and they're my grandparents on each side of my family. So, um, we kind of, we go back in that, you know, kind of lineage there Yeah, of when it was like orange groves and all that good stuff here. And I grew up (laughs) in the Valley more or less. Um, but by the time I was around seven or eight years old, we did move to Victorville and I spent all of my childhood and my teens. Where is that? Some of my 20. I didn't even, I heard of it, but not really sure what it is. Well, if you're compared to now, Hollywood, California. So if you're leaving Hollywood and you're heading to Vegas. Oh, okay. Just before you get to Barstow on the 15. Okay. Is Victorville. So I've driven by that a million times. Probably you've taken a leak there before for sure. (laughs) Guarantee it. And do you have any brothers and sisters? I do. I have uh, a younger brother and an even younger sister. So I'm the oldest of three. Oldest of three. And how are your parents growing up? Are you guys a religious family? You have strict parents? Interestingly enough, um, my parents, uh, they married young. They had children young and they're both still together. That's fucking awesome. Um, I'm 51. They got married a year before I was born. So they've been married 52 years. Wow, man. That's inspiring, man. Uh, Yeah, it's awesome. And they were and still are fantastic parents they uh my mom uh by choice never never worked um when we were kids made sure she took care of us it's awesome um my dad would sometimes work two and three jobs <laughs> to make wow, ends man. meet um and and i guess that you know by most standards not even just today but even several decades ago is old fashioned yeah totally uh, but that was the choice they made and the way yeah. that they wanted to to do it with their family. And so we were uh, we were very well cared for. We weren't latchkey kids or, yeah, 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 <laughs> or yeah. anything like that. Were they strict at all? Or? 
Uh, I would say somewhat. Yeah. Um, the funny, uh, they really didn't grow up with, uh, or we didn't grow up with a lot of religion in the home. Um, but it wasn't until we moved to Victorville that, or Hesperia, uh, so their cities are right next to each other. I use them synonymously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they, we, uh, the kids, my brother and I, we got picked up by a Sunday school bus that used to come through our neighborhood. Okay. And we always wanted to go because we, we were curious about it. Mm-hmm. So we jumped on and started going to church. And wow. um, we immediately got indoctrinated into thinking we were going to burn in hell. And we were terrified. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> because we loved our parents, we didn't want them to burn in hell. Holy crap. That so, was your choice to try out church and go do that? We just wondered what the deal with this bus was. Okay, okay, okay. some of, of our other kids. friends in the neighborhoods were jumping on it. And mm. they were like, oh, where are they going? They're going to Sunday school. Let's try yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking, we're like eight, <laughs> eight, nine, ten years old. Yeah, but still. And back in those days, my parents were like, where are you going to church? That's probably safe. Go for it. You know, which I guess is a little, we would never do that as parents now. No, 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 no. How long did that last for going to church? Um, well, it, what it did was it got my parents into church ultimately. And they, uh, they found a lot of comfort and, and, and use for their faith and their beliefs. And, uh, they're still, are very much into that and, now and yeah and that's well, you that's guys cool. inspired that which is kind of opposite you how which goes. is so weird too because as as an, as an adult i've um i kind of realized that it, it really wasn't for me <laughs> yeah, <sure. It's>, yeah. <laughs> so i they they gained religion and i lost mine wow as an adult. so and then so how were you in school like how was it growing up in school were you a good student i was a total goody goody overachiever really? yeah 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 <laughs> Straight A's and stuff? When no? I found out that there was something called the straight edge movement, I was like, oh, now I finally get to be cool. Because <laughs> that was just something I I never smoked. I've never still never smoked a Are cigarette. Are you serious? Um, I, never, I never smoked a joint, weed. I mean, I've taken pills. I never knew this, man. This is, is because awesome. Because I needed to when I was sick or went to the hospital yeah. or whatever. Um, it wasn't until probably I got into my... 30s that I started I mean I I tried booze a few times when I was younger, younger yeah um but I became more of a little bit of a late in life appreciator of okay. booze so I'm not a complete teetotaler I do I like wine and beer and bourbon yeah um well I never knew straight edge that's amazing but but yeah when I was a kid I was like full on straight edge <laughs> so, wow and uh, not well not, I even really knowing it probably you say you're like a goody two-shoes I didn't even know it was a movement yeah. and like I said when I found out it was something that people did and it made them cool and it was a way to identify in a peer group totally. especially when you're a teenager yeah I was like yes please I'll I, I yes that's me um, so in high school you did nothing no no, I was super, wow. I was considered a nerd by most people, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Although I discovered music really young and yeah, I knew, I, 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 knew I wanted to play music. So I guess I was a little bit of a, you know, a, a, what do you call it? A contradiction of what most people think that should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and being a bit isolated growing up outside of LA or Orange County or any of those areas, um, you know, and obviously this was pre-internet when yeah. I was a kid, we didn't have the same kinds of connections. So yeah. we just kind of went with whatever our local vibe was totally. and, and it was stunted. It was, everything came like way later where okay. I lived, all the movements and trends and everything. Yeah. So, uh, it was kind of still like metal vibe. Out yeah. There. And, um, how old are you then? Like what, what year would this be? 
Uh, you're like student wise, yeah. 15, maybe, okay. you know, early, early high school. Mm-hmm. When I was in junior high, when the Journey Escape record came out, Sick. I decided I loved music and that yeah. just like sucked me into it. That was like your first um, record kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah the Journey Great Escape band. thing like got me obsessed with music and, okay. and playing music. So, um, I I, I uh, started taking piano lessons and I had a keyboard at home and it's awesome. Uh, then I I kind of tried. My brother had a guitar and I played around on his a little bit and realized it was really difficult. I didn't like it very much, so I kind of threw the guitar aside. <laughs> but we <laughs> but we put a band together when I was probably fourteen or fifteen, and, yeah. and I was just the singer. And then I, I had a keyboard, so. Uh, the 80s were starting to kick in, so we had like Duran Duran and stuff yeah. like that. So we had a cover band that would play our friends' parties in late junior high, early high school. Was that Zero Tolerance? No, God, what were we called? We were called, we were called Exodus, okay, which is just weird because that's the name of like a full-on, you know, reggae, a hard metal band. Oh, it might, oh yeah, no, it might be a reggae it's thing. It's a Bob too. Marley record, my bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Exodus back then, you're right, you're right, you're but right. strangely biblical and like way yeah. too heavy handed for like a, a band yeah. of teenagers playing pop covers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of silly, but we did like Duran Duran and then we would do a Journey song, you know, and then we would do a Van Halen song. And it's cool. So we were kind of all over the map. And then uh, as I got older, I got a little bit more focused on to like metal and I really got into like Iron Maiden and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, what, were your, what were your goals in high school? My goals in high school were just mainly to do well, but was it to, uh, was it to to please your parents, get grades, or you actually love school? Love a, li- a, a little bit of both. Yeah, you know, my personality is I'm a I'm a pleaser. I want people to like me. Okay, it's <laughs> <laughs> probably why I went into music. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, which is a total uh, you know another contradiction because anytime you put yourself out there creatively, you're opening yourself up for people to criticize the hell out of you and hate you. But if you just get a few people to like you, then it kind of satisfies that weird pleaser. No, for sure. For sure. Uh, (laughs) So anyway, uh, so school, did you- so school, I did well in school, number one for me, because it made me feel good about myself. I knew it it made my parents happy, but also, um, I, I liked learning, you know, certain subjects at least. Yeah. It's funny. I think when we go to school and we're young, a lot of that, a lot of that time ends up being wasted because you're not really interested in a lot of the subjects you you're take. Not. And then you find out later in life, like, oh man, I really wished I would have learned more about history or, or, or as, aspects of history, periods and things that, yeah, just as an example. So, um, I did that, but I, when I was 14 or 15 and I started playing music and I was in a band, yeah. a, a light went off with me okay. and, and or a switch. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I'm doing this. So I kind of knew right at that Damn. time period, I want to play music for my career. Wow. And, uh, awesome. and I was focused. I was extremely focused on that and tried to do anything I could figure out that I could do to make that happen. Yeah. Were your parents supportive of it too? Very. Very much so. My dad is uh, is a musician and was okay. a musician throughout my entire childhood. I remember, I mean, of course, he worked, you know, regular 40-hour week jobs yeah. during the day. But then, you know, Thursday through Sunday, for most of my uh, childhood, he played in in bars at wow. night. Wow. So Did I remember... He guitar? He plays bass. Okay. And, I mean, his probably his strongest suit is singing. He's a okay. really, really great singer. That's fucking cool. Um, but he plays bass. He plays guitar. He plays drums. He can, mm-hmm. he can do a little bit of all of it. 
anyway, um, so, you know, some of my earliest memories on of sat- waking up Saturday morning, putting on Saturday morning cartoons, eating some cereal is seeing that guitar case or bass case, you know, in the living yeah. room because that was a just a staple. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's so cool. I grew up around that. And um, anyway, I, th- th- I was just focused on that. Like, mm-hmm. and it was it was um, for whatever it was, narrow minded or, or whatever. I think it, it did two things. It helped me. I was very motivated to achieve some level of uh, I wouldn't even call it success, but at least getting to a point where I could I could do it. And it was a I made it a reality. Yeah. On some level. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I was not focused on anything other than that. So I didn't care about going to college or. Wow. Or, I was going to ask you that. Or doing anything else besides. Uh, so you graduated, though. I did graduate high school. I graduated on the honor roll. Damn. Um, with a, I don't know, probably like a B plus average or something. Still, it wasn't amazing. I was no valedictorian. A lot of people from world, I know from this podcast, nobody really graduates in, in our world. So that's, that's true. Good to hear. It's good that's to hear, true. Yeah. And and honestly, you know, I probably should have had a little more of a, a focus on furthering my education. You know, going into higher education. But I went from that immediately into working construction jobs or whatever I had to do to, to make money okay. and focused a hundred percent on the band. So in my twenties, uh, by this time I moved out when I was 18 or 19, my wife and I uh, knew each other and then we ended up getting married not wow. too much long, that's, longer after that. We amazing. were, we were, uh, both, uh, younger than 20 when we got married. I wow. think I was 19. She was 18. But we know your parents' footsteps. You get a long marriage. I did, you know, awesome, and it, I man. think it's interesting. We are still married I know, and, it's and awesome. happily. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm saying that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And you just saw we were just together on tour yeah, only, only a year ago. Yeah, dude. Um, I love that. So that's been great. One thing I, I tried to do different from my parents, though, uh, because I wanted this to work differently for me. I was always told that my dad would have done more with music had he not had kids early mm-hmm. and he did the responsible thing by going to work and taking care of the fan, which a hundred percent that to the side that he did. Side, yeah. So I kind of grew up with this weird thing of like, if I'm going to do music, I cannot have kids, you know? Okay. And, but my wife was very, very supportive and super cool about it and always has been. So she's like, do that tour, go do whatever you want to, to make this work. Yeah. Awesome. Um, but, and we waited and we still had kids sort of young by what a, a lot of people's standards might be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of wanted to wait till I was 30, but, uh, I was 33, yeah, in 33. my late twenties, uh, we Happy. had a surprise. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so around 27, my son was born and then yeah. my daughter came four years later. Yeah. That's amazing. So we, uh, what, what band do you win when you graduate from high school? Have you oh. already started a band? So we did have a band called Victoria Manor. I think yeah. you mentioned that earlier. Yep. That was my later high school band. And we wanted to be, we wanted to be like this cross between Iron Maiden and, but I liked Queensryche a lot. Okay. And I, I never had a voice as high as Jeff Tate, but I really wanted to imitate that warble and high. A sick voice. <laughs> so silly. I mean, <laughs> for people that are fans of that, you can, you know, you're probably like, Oh yeah, that's awesome. But for, it, it's something that didn't age well. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, where, whereas, strangely, Iron Maiden did. They did. Um, but uh, uh, but that whole brand of like Queensryche operatic, high pitched, warbling stuff just yeah. didn't. Even though Bruce from yeah, he kills it. Does. Iron Maiden, he still has the warbly to- yeah, he does. high thing. 
Um, it's different though. Yeah, I know what you're saying. They're though. different. Yeah. You know, somehow they managed to survive the trappings of those decades. Yeah. And because they've been an enduring band and managed to keep a following, they 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 surpassed uh, whatever fashions or fads there yeah. were in those decades. Was it called hair metal? I guess, yeah. I mean, That's a lot of what was going then. wrong and going on in the '80s, I think, is just like ass rock, you know, like yeah. spandex, <laughs> like teased hair, all that nonsense. Um, <laughs> Victoria Mena had a three-song demo that was never released or something. You guys made a demo or something? Yeah, dude, you've done a little research. Yeah, is, is it, was, that, was, that ever, was that ever going to come out? That'd be that'd be kind of sick. Actually, we no, we did make one. Yeah, but never uh, came out. No, we pressed it. Okay. We we self we it was we were full DIY even though we weren't punk rock, we were metal. We pooled our money together and we, you know, be, being not too far from L.A., found a yeah. company that uh, cassette tapes were kind of the this is pre CD. Yeah. Um, so we made a bunch of cassette tapes. I can't remember how many, probably 300. Yeah. And we sold a few, but we tried really just to give them away mm-hmm. more than anything. Promotion. Yeah. yeah. And they have some very, uh, you know, very heady songs on them like. Uh, the tempting and a fallen honor and stuff like that. Uh, it was very, uh, it was very, what do you call it? Um, I can't think of the word. Um, kind of just, you know, silly and way too serious. Yeah. You know, so this was kind of in the formative time of really developing like what, what is your voice? Yeah. And, and right alongside the metal stuff, which was really popular where I was growing up and part yeah. of the culture um, you know, I also had access to, and this is pre MTV. Okay. There was a, a show called MV three. That was a, I don't know if it was local or maybe it was a network thing. Did maybe you West have Coast it? Where no, you grew I didn't up? have that. No. So I think it was more of a West coast thing. Yeah. And Richard blade, who's a real was it pop, music video station. Was it, it was like music video three okay, or something. Okay, okay, it, okay. it aired on channel nine here, okay. I think in, in LA. <laughs> And um, they just they started playing music videos and bands that were making music videos back then was like the new wave and and, uh, post punk and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. So I was obsessed with like Billy Idol's white wedding video. I thought that was the coolest stuff ever. But then I discovered Duran Duran and and, um, God, like Toto Coelho, you know, I eat cannibal and all that kind of weird proto punk new wave kind of stuff. And I loved it. I liked that a lot too. Yeah. So at some point I started getting a bit burned on the metal and, and this is Matt and I, uh, okay. our original bass player, Matt yeah. Riddle. He, we were buddies in high school when we put Victoria Manor together Yeah. and our bass player and I'm sorry, our guitar player and drummer, they uh, were brothers and they were moving on and left the band. So Matt yeah. and I were kind of hanging out going, what are we going to do? Let's mm-hmm. do something different. You know, like, the metal stuff's fun, but what if we did something that was more like the alarm or or, great, or the cure or psychedelic furs or the Smiths? Yeah. So we started writing songs that weren't in a minor key. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Pop yeah, yeah. songs that were around yeah, yeah. a major key. You know, where yeah. maybe if you're writing music, you're in the major. You like say you're in the key C, you got C F G, and then you go to the A minor. But that's going to be your like. That's going to be your pre-chorus, your bridge. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. going to be the thing the whole song centered around. Yeah. And uh, we we made a crop of songs like that. We came up with a really uh, another really terrible bad uh, name for our band. We called ourselves Zero Tolerance. Yeah. 
And there's and a hardcore band from Buffalo. I, which we had no idea that's because... that's my original bass player came from that band. It was crazy when I found out... Are you that, serious? Yeah. Man, oh, I never knew Price. that. Yeah, Zero Tolerance was oh, a hardcore band. Oh, that's right. Well, you were a new wave band. Yeah. Well, what's silly about that, again, is like <laughs> we had the worst ability for picking names because we, we wanted... To, it seemed like we were gravitating toward these names that were really serious. You know yeah. what I mean? Zero Tolerance is a great hardcore band it's name. A great name. <laughs> Terrible, like, new wave band name. Right? <laughs> It's pretty, yeah, pretty hard name to think about as your tolerance. So this is still, you know, pre-internet and everything's yeah. very, I mean, dude, we were touring as face-to-face pre-internet Yeah. in the days when you would travel the country and there really were scenes. Yeah. There was, because they were, it was about the local community mm-hmm. and the local, you know, culture of what was going yeah. on. Um. So we had no idea there was another zero tolerance. Mm-hmm. It was almost like you could pick any name and someone else had it somewhere. Totally. No internet shit. Uh, so we played like a party. I think we did like we did a, a Plimsolls cover and a Misfits cover. And we were a little bit all over the map. We played our originals. And it was huh. really fun. And um, we just decided that it was a little too light. And we wanted to make it a little bit more aggressive. Okay. And that's sort of how face-to-face began it was born yeah so we kept a lot actually some of those original demos we kept them but we instead of me playing like an acoustic guitar and maybe hitting a little synthesizer i got rid of the keyboard i got rid of the acoustic guitar okay. and i bought a telecaster Sick. i put a seymour duncan hot rail in it and i got a marshall half stack awesome. i was like now i'm gonna play guitar that's cool. Uh, Self-taught too, right? I took up guitar at like age 20 wow <laughs> i never really played guitar before that's freaking cool it's cool, but you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm I am a self-taught guitar player, yeah. so my technique is is my own. <laughs> yeah, but it works. I mean, obviously, it works. It works. It works. So that that would be um real quick to rewind for a second. So so you are you starting to get the punk rock then? So it all comes. You said you covered the Misfits song. Come on, the Misfits. So you're getting the punk rock and new wave at the same time. Yeah, and and in the meantime, like. You know, a, a buddy of ours, of Matt and mine, uh, is like, oh, dude, have you heard the new, like, Bad Religion record? And I'm like, mm. no, what's that? And it was No Control at the time it come out. And uh, I was like, holy shit, this is punk rock? Like, With melody? And all I'd that. never yeah. been in- introduced to that. Yeah, I was okay. like, these are just fast, like, really good pop songs. Mm-hmm. And um, whatever Ramones I'd heard, because everyone was exposed to Ramones yeah. at some point, right? Yeah, in, totally. In my age group. How far apart are we? I'm in 50. Age? I'm 50. Oh, dude. Okay, so we're right there. Okay. Even if you didn't <laughs> grow up with like punk rock on your doorstep, you knew, yeah. you knew the Ramones. Of course. And I thought the Ramones were cool. Yeah. Um, Great melodies. But nothing nothing like what Bad Religion was. That opened up a whole new thing to me. I was like, whoa, fast. okay, yeah. this exists. I like this a lot. This is mm-hmm. rad. And then, uh, and then... Fugazi. It's funny you're wearing the shirt. Yeah. Um, he's like, oh, yeah, dude, check out this. Uh, I don't know if Repeater was out yet or if it was still two things at once that I heard first, Incredible, which was the, in combining the two EPs. And uh, 12 songs or something, 13, 13 songs. That's yeah. it. That's yeah, it. Songs, yeah. I said two things at once. That's Descendants. That's Descendants. We're getting, we're getting Descendants. I was getting to the Descendants because that's my other, there. like, I have this trifecta of okay. bands that really made me go, wait a minute. There's something cool about punk rock. Yeah, it's Bad Religion, Descendants, and Fugazi. That's what great. did it. That's what did it for me. Okay, it's a great. Now, Fugazi yeah. didn't really have the same mel- melody. They did it in a different way, but Fugazi was like the the part of that attracted me to punk rock that was all heart. 
Totally. You know what I mean? Because not just a certain sound. Exactly, and yeah. you could hear what those guys did, and there's talent and, and ability there, but what they lacked in ability, they made up for. You know, I agree. by leaps and bounds with heart. Yeah, man. and and it was that that energy and just the the delivery of how yeah. that stuff came particularly Ian McKay you know yeah, um so so now i kind of had these things that balanced out my love of like the 80s pop of the cure and the smiths yeah. with a little more heavy stuff which was mm-hmm. more appealing to me as a 20 something yeah of course yeah. And and so we just kind of started molding our songs to. I mean, what does every what does anyone do when they mm-hmm. start a band or start writing songs? You want to write the kind of stuff that you love to hear. Yeah, yeah. You write what you want to hear, but you're kind of also just regurgitating the Other stuff that stuff you, you love. Like, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent, man. It's so true. And and uh, that, so that's kind of really where face to face come from came from. And and when we got that lineup of of me and Matt and Rob, the original three piece. Yeah we just started playing. So I was working construction. Matt was working construction. Rob was working construction. Um, <laughs> How he, old were you then? It was 91, right? Yeah, I was 22 Okay. in 91. I turned 22 in May of 91. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, from like 19 to that 21 point is kind of this weird time where we were sort of trying to find what it was we were. And when we finally defined it as face-to-face and we had that first batch of songs that would end up becoming don't turn away yeah that was really the where we were like okay now we know what we want to do and at least we had a jumping off point yeah you know for the future and where'd the name come from the name came from which actually it's also a little bit maybe that could be a hardcore band totally. name too right it <laughs> totally yeah, could yeah totally <laughs> of right. course we were completely unaware there yeah. was a boston pop band called face to face i know that that had a, a brief career in the 80s, yes, fronted wow. by Laurie Sargent. You can look that up on Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, that, I guess, had a record deal on a major label and made Damn. music videos and all that kind of stuff. Face to face, yeah, it's super we, we, it. You know, we were, we were sitting around a table. I remember this. Uh, Rob's friend at the time, Mark Hakey, was our uh, other guitar player. Okay. Um, Rob was ex-Air Force, okay. and he had just gotten out. We have, there's a base in Victorville. So he was stationed there. Okay, perfect. So he he got stationed there and then he he was out and he just moved into the city. But a buddy of his who was still in the Air Force was a guitar player. And he's like, hey, my buddy wants to come over and jam with us. Let's see if it's a fit. And um, and that was Mark Hakey. And and he was rad. We got along as friends and we played music together and wrote, you know, a few things here and there. He actually ended up writing. um, He has a co-write credit for the song. Uh, velocity because okay. it had something to do with that even though we wouldn't record it until later on big choice yeah um and then since he was still active military he got called to desert storm dang so we just started playing as a three-piece okay. and then when he got back it was kind of like we're kind of doing this three-piece thing dude like wow, it's working it for? better for us yeah <laughs> uh oh man maybe not even as much as a year you know, was he bummed when he got back? That? I mean, he came back and we played together still. Okay, at, okay. initially, yeah, we, it wasn't like he showed back up and we had his amp and guitar out front going. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. Hey, man, there's your stuff. <laughs> but See it was ya. working. But yeah, we we had already kind of bonded and and we really liked how it was going as a three piece. And when he came back, it was kind of like, you know, the the kind of thing that didn't really fit too mm-hmm. well. So we we parted ways and and just kept it 
lean and mean as a third yeah. And how was those how, how those first shows as you became face to face like started playing shows around locally and stuff, getting a name for yourself? Yeah. So being from being from Victorville, there was nowhere to play there. Obviously, yeah. um, the closest gigs for us were probably about a 30, 40 minute ride to like San Bernardino. Yeah. Uh, Riverside. We go to Riverside a lot. There was a venue there called Spanky's. Yeah, no Spanky. Yes. Um, that, yeah, that's where we did some Legendary. of our. Yeah. It's where we did some of our first shows. Okay. And um, we we played there a lot. Okay. Um, and then there would like be the CBGBs of there of Riverside. For sure, it totally was. And it's the rad great. thing about Spanky's is it became the showcase theater later. Yeah, great. But spot. the early days, it was called Spanky's. Um, one of the first shows we ever did. I, I I didn't know how to do any of this business stuff, right? I'm just some <laughs> dumb kid from the desert. So we made a demo, and I called the owner of the club, and he also was the guy who booked it. His name is Ezat Solomon. And uh, I said, I'd like to take a meeting with you because my band would like to play at your venue. And he's take like, a meeting. He's like, okay. So <laughs> cool. I drove down and met with him, and I, I gave him my tape in person. And I was like, we'd love to play anytime. We don't want any money. We just want to play for people, whatever. And he's like, okay, yeah, it's really cool. And and so he called me a week later and he goes, I have some bands coming through on a tour. It's um, it's Jawbox and oh, wow. uh, some other band that was playing. And I think it was when they were doing For Your Own Special Sweetheart Tour. Okay. And we, that was our first gig at Spanky's. Damn, that's Opening cool. like a good national tour. That's awesome. Um, and I didn't even realize how significant that was at the time. But yeah. it, was, it was pretty rad. Yeah, it was really cool for your first show. Um, so we played there quite a bit because Izat was a cool very cool guy and he gave us a lot of opportunities there and then you know we'd get the odd college gig yeah um, there was some in san Bernardino. we used to play the barn in riverside oh, great, here man. and there um there's a fold you just put those shows on yeah, yeah 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 i met bill in the very early days he was awesome, like another dude. one of those guys early on that i took a meeting with and we matt and i together <laughs> that's cool and gave him the cassette and um and so he I like how professional you guys were. <laughs> we were trying. Yeah, man. But it worked. I mean, shit. It did. Because I guess that personal touch, maybe. Yeah. Um, we played The Scream. <laughs> we played The Green Door. We played, um, that was in Ontario. There was a place called Munchies in Pomona that okay. we played a bunch. And then um, played the circuit. I, I met Ren, who used to book the anti-club here in Hollywood. Okay. And, and she was really, really super nice and liked the band. And she would book us like okay. a lot at anti-club. And for us... Anytime we played Hollywood, we're like, oh shit, dude, yeah, this is the big time. This yeah. is these <laughs> this is gonna be the good market right here. Yeah. And it would always be like on a Wednesday night for like Damn. ten for like eight people or something. You know what I mean? Um but our bigger crowds were happening in Inland Empire. Okay. So um <laughs> yeah. it's funny how that works. But that totally. started to build the biggest first. Inland Empire, Orange County. Yeah. And then uh, in L.A. was always the harder nut to crack. To break, yeah, for but us that, too, that for sure. finally did happen mm-hmm. after a while. Trapping and, East Coast band coming here, too, it, it was super hard. Oh, I can imagine. To come imagine. out here. Um, so, um, yeah. Uh, and then we weren't even a band for... I mean, we formed in 91, and I think by 92, we had already released Don't, Don't Turn, Turn Away, Away on, yeah. on uh, Dr. Strange Records. With Disconnected on it yeah. as well. Yeah, so things happened pretty quick yeah. for us. It was Walk Away was a great song too on there. Oh, thanks. Man. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing because we, I actually called this venue, this called the Scream for a meeting, looking for a show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so good. And uh, they're like, "Well, I think I had something booked with them," and I called to confirm it, and they said, "Hey, there's just going to be this other thing happening. Sorry, we double booked you. It's a night of Doctor Strange Records bands." 
And I was like, what's that? And the guy's like, I don't know. Maybe you can jump on the show. Why don't you just call the guy that booked it? Maybe he'll just let you jump on as an opener. I'm like, all right, cool. So I call and get Bill Plaster of Dr. Strange Rest wow, Records. Wow, man. And I tell him what I want to do. And he's like, yeah, dude. Yeah, cool. Jump on. All good. So, um, and then the show ended up getting canceled or oh, something. Oh, shit. But I stayed in touch with Bill. And uh, I was like, hey, we've worked on a bunch of songs. I know you got this record label. Would you ever want to come see our band play? Yeah. And so we, we set up a show at the Green Door, which is in Ontario. And Bill came out to that and watched the band. And right after our set, he was like, do you guys want to make a record with my label? That's <laughs> we awesome, like, man. Yes, we do. That's so cool, man. Yeah. So it came together. It came together really, really quickly. And it was it was a, a real good thing. We um. He got us into West Beach. Yeah. We were only there for two weekends, and we made the entire record in two weekends. Was that Gerwitz's spot? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And his partner, Don Cameron, was yeah. the engineer that uh, recorded we and mixed did our to first record. We did something in the 90s, too. Yeah, West Beach. Yeah. It was, a, it, was a, it was a cool studio. Yeah, I, I love yeah. that place. I yeah. actually ended up doing a bunch of stuff there at different times. Yeah. Um. So don't turn away comes out and how is that how is that like you establish every record well, out well actually that's a little I don't want to make turn this into like a three hour conversation don't worry about it. people want to hear it <laughs> doesn't you're here so that was a little 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 more to it than that we did the two uh, weekends yeah. got the record done and mixed and then we kept playing shows and we did a show at the Roxy and after we were done I met this guy uh, Jim Goodwin okay. who came up to me and said hey I really like the band. Um, I'm an engineer at such and such studio and I'm trying to make my bones there. And they told me whenever I want, I can bring bands in on off hours and record their stuff. Gotcha. So would you like to come in and record for free? And I was like, Dang. what? That can't be right. Yeah. He's like, yeah, dude. And I'm like, okay, for free. What you got to want something like, what do you want us to sign? Or he's yep. like, I want nothing. I just want to be able to put my name on something. That's, that's I think awesome. your songs are good and I'd like to be associated with this to help my own career. Wow. So come to find out it was the studio called Soundcastle in um Silver Lake. Okay. Owned by Keith Sweat, the R and B oh, musician. Yeah, I like Keith Sweat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and dude, it was nice. So we yeah. drove into this place and it was a big gated facility. It had yeah. basketball courts, it had three or four Sweat different rooms. Huge, yeah. And we're like, wait a minute, we don't belong. How do, how do we, I felt like we were going to get kicked out at any moment. Yeah. But so during the time <laughs> we'd finished that original West Beach session and when the Jim Goodwin thing happened, we'd already written like four or five more songs. Okay. So we're like, why don't we do this? We love what we did but we'll go and record these four or five more songs and see what happens. Okay. So the new songs, nah, I'm going to forget some of these. One of them was disconnected. Okay. It wasn't part of that original crop of don't turn away. Mm. That was part of the new five that we did with Jim. Okay. And I don't know, some of the other probably walk away or, you know, yeah. one, one of the others, Wow. a few of the others. So we recorded new stuff with Jim. He took the multi-tracks that Don had recorded and then we compiled a new album Okay. Based on the new tracks with Jim, the old tracks with Don, and then he mixed everything. Okay. Of course, Bill at Doctor Strange was kind of like just going, Jesus, guys, make this process more complicated. Mm -hmm. Why don't you? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, we already had a finished record, and now you're like throwing this wrench in the works. But, <laughs> but what ended up coming out of it is, was, I think, a really strong debut album. Yeah. Because we had the time 
to like write this huge batch of songs and it allowed yeah. us to kick a few out and, and favor the stronger ones or whatever. Yeah. So that's what came out on Dr. Strange. Okay. And, and then we just kind of went about our business. Like I think we, we got lucky and maybe got a, a show in Phoenix. You so do like a big tour and so we're like, Oh wow. We got it. We're, we're doing shows out of state. Yeah. Um, we would go to San Francisco, play the Bay area a bunch. Yeah. We would go down to San Diego. We were kind of expanding our, our circle, but not quite like going on tour. Yeah. I think we'd done like a show in Reno and a show in Tahoe and, and, and then some Bay area stuff and Santa Barbara. And so no, East San Coast Diego. Yet, like that. We, no, we hadn't really toured up okay. until this point. Yeah. Then we, uh, so then how did this come about? Somehow we landed on a show with no effects in Salt Lake city. Nice. Um, I know how it happened. Uh, Carl from ill repute. No, Great Carl, band. no Carl from ill repute. No, I know the band. Oh, okay. The band. So the drummer Carl, um, we were going to be doing a show in with ill repute either somewhere in the Ventura area. And okay. Carl's like, dude, stay at my house while you guys are up here. And we're like, all right, awesome. So we stay at his place while we're there. Tim, Tim from the band, the Grimm, okay. who was uh, working with no effects at the time. He was part of their road crew. He was staying at Carl's house. So yeah. we all hung out and talked and whatever for the night. And Tim was like, dude, you know, I was telling him what I wanted to do with the band. You know, it was very, yeah. <laughs> very forward thinking. I was always man. working it, you know? And Tim's like, I like that. well, dude, Mike just started this label called fat records. You should talk to him about it. This band that, you know, no effects that I'm working with and, and whatever. Wow. He's like, as a matter of fact, I'm going to talk to Mike about getting you guys on a show. And so I think they were on tour. It might not have been. Yeah. But um, one of the closest dates they were doing that we could jump on was a Salt Lake City show. So we drove from Victorville to Salt Lake for Dang. one show. And this was so ghetto, man, because <laughs> we, we had no money. And I'm sure uh, Rob, Rob had it. We, we all kind of had these little pickup trucks, the little mini kind. And uh, to haul our gear around, you know, every musician has a truck or a station wagon or something to haul something. their gear when you're especially when especially you're young. Especially back then, yeah. <clears throat> so. In order to keep our costs down, Rob had this Ford Ranger pickup that kind of had the this, this short extra cab. It didn't have full seats, but it had the little jump seats. Gotcha. We loaded all the gear into his thing, and then two guys got to ride in the full seats, and then one guy had to like crouch down behind in the jump all the way to Salt Lake. Dang. So That's we, a long drive. <laughs> it was. It's like 10 hours at least, at right? At least. Okay. So uh, <laughs> so we, we drove all the way up there, and we played the show with no effects, and... And it was awesome. It was at some uh, people who are older that might be from Salt Lake might remember this venue. It was a venue that was in an old church. Okay. <clears throat> and it had a gigantic stained glass window. It was like behind the back of the stage. Okay. That's what I remember about it. It was really, really cool. That's well, awesome. One of the bigger crowds we'd ever played to. We'd never even been to Salt Lake before. That's a, you great, know? That's a great first show there. So, yeah. The, so that was a great one. And we met Mike and the guys in No Effects. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And before we knew it, Mike was like, well, if you want to re-release the Don't Turn Away record on Fat, I'll just call Bill and um, work something out. So I called Bill and I said, yo, dude, we want to you're awesome. Thank you so much for everything you've done for us. But you know, th the whole reason I was looking is because while we were out doing our thing and the record was out, people were constantly coming up to me going, I can't buy your record. It's frustrating. I really want to buy your record, but Been it there. doesn't exist. You're like, can't where is anywhere. it? That's frustrating. And, uh, so I was like, we got to do something. So 
Bill really didn't want us to jump. Obviously he liked the band. He was invested in it and it was all good. But I was like, if, if Mike can make you an offer that is fair on any level that you're happy with, would you please let us go to this bigger label? Because it also brought the promise of being part of a network of more bands, getting tours offered to us. You know, it just, it was a light year jump into something bigger than just our little world. Did you have a booking agent then? Oh God, no. All right. So that's another. <laughs> yeah, it was me. That. I was our booking okay, agent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Taking meetings with people and, you know. No, I love it. So, but if you go on that level of fat records, maybe there's, you know, people connected to that. I can find booking agents. Yeah. Next so, level. so Bill, Bill did come to an agreement with Mike. Mike gave Bill a buyout for Don't Turn Away. Wow. We re-released it on Fat and Fat went, you're going on tour. And we were like, hell yeah. <laughs> wow, man. We were stoked. So the first tour we did was with Lagwagon in Europe, and they had already been a bunch of sure, times. Sure, that's a great supporting first tour too. No Effects. This was like '93, I think. Great man. And so I think it was Lagwagon's. It, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It might have been the first time they tried their own headline tour okay. in Europe because they'd been they were big over there, man. They'd been making their bones, yeah. supporting No Effects. I've seen them. Over so there. then we jumped on as a support act, and it was awesome. I mean, most of the shows were really good size. There were a couple stinkers here. And no there, effects but, headline. No, 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 oh, no, lag no lag effects. Lag. It was Lagwagon oh, and no, us okay, only. Okay. Um, so that was a good one. It's a great first European tour. And then when we got home, no effects offered us a tour, which is essentially a Canadian tour, but it had yeah. dates in Portland, Seattle, and then Vancouver across to Winnipeg and then dates in the Midwest and then dates in Toronto and Montreal. Perfect. And then a couple on the way back. That's a great So we got a good mix of some US markets, mostly Canadian, but and it was just such a boost. Yeah. It was man. a massive boost. And did for you us. feel did you feel a different uh push and reception for Don't Turn Away the second time it was released? Was it like a brand new record again, kind of? Um I don't know if I ever looked at it that way. It always kind of felt like this upward arc the whole yeah. time we were working on it. But but people stopped complaining about not being That's able to a, find yeah, it. Yeah, that too. And you get in front of different audiences, touring different bands. And yeah, and well, now when we're on a tour, we had boxes and boxes of CDs we could sell at the merch table. So if, yeah. if you were there to see No Effects and you never heard of us and you liked what you saw when we played, you were right over there buying a CD. Yeah, it's you know? perfect, man. And that's that's what you want you know, yeah. as a band. Um, well, wow. back then... You, we're talking as old timers. Nowadays, then, yeah. people are like, oh, I heard this band for 15 seconds and then I looked for them on Spotify and I listened to part of their song and then I got bored and did something else. But back then, the labels <laughs> would give you that stuff you'd sell and keep the cash. You yes. make your money off those CDs. That's how you survived on tour, merging exactly. the CDs. Exactly. So it was like an advance or something. So you then, know? then we then we were at, at a point where we could start kind of stepping out on our own and we started. we booked a tour that was just our own tour from... Still L- you booking it? Uh, no, now we had Mike Kelly okay. through Fat Records, who That's was their insane. agent. Another opportunity. That's great. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It helped us step up a little bit. Yeah. And Mike booked us a tour from Los Angeles to Florida. Um, okay. And then, so we basically played shows all the way out to Florida and then just deadheaded straight back. Yeah. But dude, that was, that was so good for us and mm-hmm. so eye opening. It was a lot of small clubs, but we played the hardback in Gainesville, which is one of my standout mo- okay. nights that I remember. Because so many people filled in. It was a tiny little room. There wasn't a stage. Yeah. You just set up in the corner. But (laughs) I hadn't done a show with so many people in it and just have it just be so frantic and and crazy and just filled Mm -hmm. with people. And, you know, it was nuts. That's a great feeling. It was was a lot of fun. Yeah. Especially in Florida. Like, 
first time really headlining there. It just felt, I mean, we'd been to Europe and lots of places in Canada, but yeah. that felt like, wow, now we're really doing all these like U.S. markets we hadn't been into before. And that yeah. started feeling a lot more legit. Yeah, were you, you know? feeling at that point like you, this is something, obviously you want to do for your career, but you feel like we had a feeling that face-to-face could be, this is going to be your yeah. full-time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, there wasn't really, since Don't Turn Away was a buyout of a previous record that we'd released. We weren't, I don't think at that point we were really getting tour support or anything. So it was like, okay, if we're going to take off our jobs for X amount of time, how much do you think we could make maybe selling merch or or whatever and CDs? And yeah, you remember what that was like Yeah, when you're trying to just weigh everything. So those are kind of flying by the seat of our pants a little bit then. Of course. But yeah, go ahead. No, no. Well, then we got to a point where it was like time to make a new record. And then it was like, so do we get an advance? Like, well, this was a major label, right? (laughs) The next one was a major label, right? It ended up being that, but we had, we had a lot of different, ways we could go and we okay. ended up settling with I'm sure. w- what was a, a, a well not that many i wish we had more options yeah <laughs> so uh when big choice came we, t- it was time to do a deal for the next record which was big choice um fat offered us a deal yeah and uh and now i forget at what point we'd brought in actual manager i think we had a mm. we had a man our old our friend jim who had like done those first few songs for us on spec okay he was working with this artist that had a manager that was looking for more clients and he's like i think face to face would be perfect for this guy so he put us together and we met and uh and we're like oh we don't have anything else going yeah let's get a manager mm-hmm. and um so he kind of went and started shopping labels for us and he brought this label you might you might remember something about this was the band uh where was the band quicksand from were they east coast they were east coast right yeah walter okay so we met with medicine records okay and i think they had something to do with quicksand in the beginning yeah because then they went to atlantic after that yeah so some dude from medicine came out and met with us in victorville california okay and he was just like, oh, yeah, quicksand and Walter this and Walter that and blah, blah, blah. And he really he was interested in doing something with us, but their offer wasn't very good. And uh, we met with a couple other like of those like labels that weren't a major, but they were a mid-level who had a deal with a major. Yeah. And then they had Subsidiary the distribution. The yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, man, dude. They don't exist anymore, so I don't really have to warn any new bands about going to one of those. But those were like one of the worst places you could be as a band because they didn't have any of the teeth of a major. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't. Yeah, but uh, but they made imprint. They called it. But they made you all the promises. You know. Yeah, it was like an imprint. Maybe they called it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You you seem like you seem like a person that no matter even if you had a manager or not that you're you love to not not to be controlled but this is your baby and your passion so like you said you booked all your original shows you know what it's like to actually book a show go out there and talk to different promoters so must was it it hard for you to let go and let somebody take over as a manager or you really just focus on music both it was actually both have you ever let go of that because no no it's hard it's hard (laughs) we've been through a lot of managers as well i'm just saying it's hard to give up everything because you well, you you know you can get things done better yourself if you just do it. You know what I mean? Exactly. So exactly. giving those reins to somebody else, taking a percentage, it's like you really got to work for that shit. Yeah, and I, I I it's something I started saying over the years to 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 other people in bands or or even to like younger people in bands that want advice or whatever. It's the, I tell them there's no one in the world who are, 
ever care about your band more than you will. So true. No one. No Not, one. And, and, and you think there might be at periods of your career. Your career. You'll talk to some people that have a great speech and seem like they're just as invested in it as you, but there really will never be anyone that cares about it as much as you do at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, so you have to keep that in mind. And I, I have been willing to give up control because I can't do everything, can't. obviously. And, and, uh, you know, there's other people that we, we you know, they're far better connected than I am yeah, and have better yeah. relationships and all that kind of good stuff. So it's short-sighted to think that you For should sure. do everything. Well, was it hard to like, because Fat Mike was your friend, to like make that move to go and leave? It was. Um, yeah. we, we became, you know, friendly enough. And uh, of course, when you tour with the band and especially with your, when you're young, when we did that tour with No Effects through Canada we you know that was awesome yeah you know? we love those guys yeah and it's, <laughs> it's been a long long time since then and we haven't stayed like in touch like we haven't been with on tour with them yeah. ever again i don't think since okay. then but it still remains as one of those really great nostalgic memories i have mm-hmm. you know it had a real big impact on and that's me. cool to only have to do one record only but then go in somewhere else that's, that's great well we wanted to go to fat it actually caused yeah. a lot of strife within the band Okay. Um, Matt wanted us to go to fat okay. and he didn't even want to hear about any other record label. Mm. Um, but I, at the time was still working in construction and, uh, and I was married and, yeah. and so I had a little bit of a different situation 100%. and, and I was like, well, if, if I'm going to stop working to do this, I need to, there has to be some financial contingency. Like I don't expect that I'm going to you know, have it made for the rest of my life, but I have to be able to go, okay, I'm going to get X amount of dollars. It'll cover me for this many months. And then I know I can go give this a shot. Yeah. You have different uh, responsibilities at that time. Yeah. And the, and the numbers that fat was able to do at the time, they were a small label, you know, they were, they were kind of up and coming. Yeah. I know that might be hard for some people to imagine now at this (laughs) point, but this was, we were talking like 94, you know, totally before punk broke. It it really was. It really was. So, uh, (laughs) so I think they made the best offer they could and, but it just wasn't going to work for us if we wanted to try and next level the band. So, and the big choice comes from that making a big choice. Is that kind of like, it was kind of a tongue in cheek thing, but yeah, yeah. Chad, our, who had joined the band as our guitar player for that album. That's part of his kind of wacky sense of humor. He okay. always, he would make that joke about us making a big choice. And then we're like, well, what if we put the claw machine? And it just kind of came out of that. <laughs> but, um. uh, so we ended up going with a, a bad label that was a subsidiary of a major, yeah. <laughs> which I, you should never do ever. Um, they're, they were called victory music okay. and they were a subsidiary of what were they a subsidiary of? Epic, uh, A&M, 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 records. A&M. Wow. So, uh, we learned a lot through that process. I'm sure, man. There were, there were good people at the label and there were people that had their heads up their ass. I, I don't think there was anyone there who was, um, inherently evil or looking to do bad or looking yeah. to rip anyone off or uh, any opportunists. Yeah. But there were just people there that were competent and people that were incompetent. Of course. You know, like anywhere. Um, and we got some good advice while we were there. Um, there was a, a person in particular in A&R that took us under her wing and said, you know, your manager shouldn't be on tour with you when you're getting ready to put out a record. Mm. You should be doing ABC if you want your band to be more successful. And and I took that advice and we used it to kind of mm. break away from from a lot of the situations we'd 
inadvertently got ourselves into at okay. that point. So that was a wow. big a big help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and you know, so we it was that was a weird time because they wanted to hire a producer. We yeah. never really worked with a producer before, and they this was after the Offspring Smash came out and, and had done and was crushing it. Crushing and, it. and Green Days, all that Dookie had come out and was doing really well too. Um, That's like 94, 95, yeah. Yeah, so we did uh, we did the record with Tom Wilson, who was the okay. Offsprings producer oh, on wow. Smash. Perfect, okay, gotcha. And our A&R guy at the time was like, it's a no-brainer. We'll pay this guy X amount of dollars. He'll make your record. It's going to be another hit. Well, Woo. it wasn't that easy because... We had songs, and I thought the songs were pretty good. Yeah. But compared to what I know now about making records and what we were doing then, we were we were fumbling in the dark. Like you know, mm. we had we had no idea what we were doing. Yeah. We were just doing whatever we knew how to do. Yeah. And dude, do you do you remember what the '90s were like to be in a punk rock band? I mean, it was the era of kill rock star it was anti rock star anti-major label to anti everything everything was about your presupposed ethics yeah as a musician yeah. and there was a lot of moral judgments put 100%. on people about what they did or didn't and do. message boards just started back then too i hated when message boards began that was a big thing during the same time where punk was blowing up Everybody right had an opinion sell out just everything. so i'd like to say that we were divorced of that okay because i i wanted to be an independent thinker love that and i was like well you know what i know people say major labels are bad but why like i yeah. need to experience this for my i, I don't know mm-hmm. that they're bad i haven't been well it took me was on one. it took me being hard-headed enough to go through the experience to go okay now i get it yeah now i'm with these guys mm. <laughs> but at the time that major label was the only one that was offering the uh the budget and the tour support and the things that i needed yeah. to go well now i can turn this into a reality mm. um and i don't necessarily think we were selling our soul they didn't really come in and do anything with us create they did not fuck with us creatively yeah. in one bit. No one came in and said, write your song this way, write it that way. Yeah. But I guess what I'm trying to get around to is because of that ethic that are in the attitude that was so pervasive in the nineties, I think because we signed to a major, we felt like we had to overcompensate for it. So, yeah. so when, when the label, when the A&R guy said, Hey, Tom Wilson would like to take a pre-production meeting with you. So we could talk about your songs and then we could get talk about Some how to make a record awesome. and all yeah. that kind of stuff. I was like, fuck that, dude. No one's telling me how to write my songs. Mm. I know what I'm doing. We're a punk rock band. We do it our way. It was one of the stupidest things I could have ever done. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah. all I did was prevent us from having any opportunity to potentially make the record better. You know, it's mm. not like we would have taken the meeting and we would have had to just do whatever anyone said. No, no, no. You know, but why not? Well, you had this. Now, in hindsight, I'm like, why not take the meeting? There might have been 30 bad ideas and one good one. But yeah. the one good one might have made that one song way better. Yeah. Or it could have made the album sound better or, yeah. or the production or whatever. Yeah. So that overcompensation of the sellout thing and all that, we just went, you know what? We're on tour. We don't have time for pre-production. And we wouldn't let him tell us how to make our songs anyway. So wow. we kind of looked at working with a producer as a threat wow. because okay. we, we wanted to work with people that we knew, you yeah. know, buddies of ours or whatever. Yeah. So, 
So we, we, we went in and did the record at a place called track record in uh, studio city. And uh, I think it's studio, whatever, somewhere in yeah, that yeah. part of town. And uh, it was cool. You know, there were like gold records hanging on the wall of all these big bands and stuff. We thought, Oh wow, this is a really pro studio. I think mm-hmm. quiet riot was in studio B while we were in the other one, Yeah, at, which we thought was hilarious. Like, yeah. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't really respect them or anything. Yeah, we thought yeah. it was funny that they were there. And, um, you know, we were a little bit cocky trying to stick to whatever our ethic was. And, and, uh, we didn't really let Tom have any input on the wow. record at all. And I think he knew that going in. So he kind of just went, cool, man, I'm getting a paycheck. I'll do yeah. what I need to do and we'll get it over with. And then I'll go on tour with the offspring because he was also mixing the offspring okay. live, gotcha. uh, in addition to doing their thing. And, uh, he's chilling. Smash was blowing up. He's cool. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> what he's go, he's like looking at his watch going, yeah. I'm going to make this record for two weeks and then I'm going to go jump on tour with the offspring. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, we're, we're thinking everything's about us. Yeah. And it was just so naive and, okay. and short-sighted. Yeah. Um, when I look back on it now, you know, it's easy to, to judge these things in hindsight. No, totally. So we, we, uh, we went in and made the record and I, I think Tom, I can't really credit Tom actually ended up uh, passing away. Oh, wow. I, um, I don't know how long ago he got okay. cancer. And, and oh, uh, so you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't criticize him though, even if he was still around Yeah, because I realize how we acted through that period. Yeah. <laughs> but of course I don't, I wouldn't want to say anything bad about Tom. You know, um, I think he did the best he could with what we were able to give him because yeah. we, we didn't give much. That being said, you know, it was definitely a record that was made on cruise control. The, the, the mics put on the toms to record the album were lav mics that you would use at a live show. Wow. Um, and everything was just sort of done on the fly and without yeah. much thought. I got sick partway through the record and my voice sounded terrible. I, t- I took a day off and everyone got really pissed and they're like, the record's still going to get made. So now you just have one day fewer to make it two vocals whatever and i was just like dude like, yeah, like three thousand my voice sounds crazy something. right now like i can't yeah. make the record so <laughs> i still listen back to the record and i go yeah i sound hoarse for the record because i had a sore throat wow. um but it is what it is and 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 part of the reason that it is what it is is by our own design <laughs> yeah um i and I'm probably far more critical. I know there's people out there that love the record and yeah. love the song, so I'm not knocking it, but I yeah. think the potential of the record could have been better had we been better human beings yeah. at the time. I have, a similar, I have a similar experience as you is that we left Epitaph to go to MCA to try out a major label as well. I did, I did the completely opposite, and don't regret this album called Go because people love it. But we hired Matt Wallace to produce it. It was at Rumbo Studios. Yeah. Guns and Roses were in the room next to us. Oh, dude, the that's whole all time. good stuff. Yeah. So it was exciting. And then I, I, I didn't write one lyric on the record. I, I kind of checked out. I was moving here from California. My wife, who's staying at the Oakwoods, I kind of let my brother Todd and Rusty take the reins on this record. I love the songs, but they're overproduced to me. I love you, Matt Wallace. We chose him because he did replacements and Faith No More, but it's over poppy. And so I did the totally opposite and just let them take the reins because I was really nervous and not excited about leaving Epitaph. And Brett's like, you can leave, you can come back whenever you want. He was so cool about it. And we went and did this record, but it was it was kind of the opposite thing. But yeah, it was like going to MCA Records, like Blink was on there, New Found Glory, everything was blowing up and all that. Yeah. Just like taking that chance. People called us sellouts, blah, blah, blah. And we didn't overcompensate as well. But you know, obviously we, I don't know, man. It just... 
I guess we did like, hey, like these, you know, the, the shirts we wore on the record and still tour with our friends, hardcore bands. We were the same people. We're just trying something different, you know? Sure. We were the same. Sure. We weren't, weren't like selling our integrity or, I don't know, I was just trying something. You know, I, this, there's no instruction book that comes along with doing this. Yeah. You know what I mean? All, all you can do is react. It, it's, I mean, it's like mo- most of what life is. Yeah. You can only just really react in the moment that you're living at the time you're living it. Yeah. So, um, and when you're young, you don't have this, you know, vast pool of experiences to draw from that would inform your, your wisdom in these situations. Yeah, right? it's true. <laughs> right? It's so true. And, uh, you know, move, but... intimidation comes into it. Um, all kinds of different, all kinds of different things affect your, your, uh, motivation and, and viewpoint. So, yeah, you shouldn't regret it. You I know, regret it. it was just something we had, we, it was part of our career, something we tried. And exactly. It didn't work out. For me, it was like I saw Seven Seconds. They went to Restless Records. I love Seven Seconds, and like they got more melodic, and like we love melodic music as well. And like I got inspired by seeing my friends signing to majors and stuff, like taking chances. Quicksand, Orange Nine Millimeter, Civ. Yeah, was on Atlantic. Yeah, a bunch of my friends were trying different things, and so we tried, and it just didn't work for us. But people to this to this day, people love that record, and those those songs stand out with our older songs. But production wise, it was just over the top. So. It's twenty one year. It's twenty years old next year, and I kind of want to re-record the whole thing and make it just sound like us and see what that would come out like. That'd just be kind of fun. You should cool. do it. Yeah, yeah, just for twenty years, just have like maybe Chad Gilbert do it because he did our past records and just keep it raw. You know, twentieth anniversary alternate recordings. Yeah, but it's like so. just the money we spent, the videos, and all the stuff we think back and like we're still in debt to MCA Records. Like twenty years later, we get these little royalty things, or it's like a joke. Yeah. Still, Four hundred thousand dollars or something is this? Well, that was part fantasy. of that was the major label game, right? Yeah. What they did was they wanted to keep you unrecouped as long Ever, as they could. Dude. So Ever. not only would they charge you for things that were legitimate charges, but they charge you for everything. They would make up stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, A and R guys would go out and run up the tab and put it on your record on bill us. while they're like giving, you know, giving away like uh, passes to resorts and golf courses and stuff to radio station people. Yeah. And then that all gets charged back to your account. So I remember there were bands at the time in the 90s going, oh, cool, we have like three hit songs and we've sold platinum records, but somehow we're still unrecouped on this major. Like, how does that work? It's scary, man. So I I think the whole, um, you know, digitalization of music and online music and streaming and everything has finally leveled the playing field yeah. now. Yeah. And a lot of people resisted it because a lot of people were making a lot of money and getting rich and doing well with it. But yeah, it's a little bit more, um, it's a little more democratic now. I think, you know, the mm-hmm. music that people have access to that they like gets played and the stuff that doesn't resonate with people doesn't. And yeah, so it's a little more egalitarian, I think, cause you don't have all these, I mean, there's still some gatekeepers, but it's not the way that it used to be where no. you weren't going to get anywhere if you didn't go through one of the gatekeepers into music. It's so it's you know? so true. Now you can make a record in your bedroom and upload it through CD baby or TuneCore or whatever. Yeah. And it's on Spotify in a week. Yeah. You know? And then it's up to you to promote it and let people know that and, it's out there. And for the rapper SoundCloud, a lot of rappers blew up on SoundCloud first. Right. Right. Yeah. All, all, all those, all those different things. So, um, so dude, I don't want to drag through, I mean, you know, I, I'm at like year four or five okay, and dude, it's, all, yeah, it's like 30 years of the band. So <laughs> well, um, I want to talk about disconnected though. Yeah. I want to, I want to quit like, 
anthologizing the band. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize. Like, <laughs> I started this path, and I'm like, wait, this is going to take like a day. Dude, so I want to just ask about, me questions. I want to talk about disconnected. How? Hey guys, that was just part one of the Trevor Keith from Face to Face podcast. It's two and a half hours, so I decided to cut it right in half for you guys, and we'll hear part two next week. It's an incredible conversation. I learned so much about Trevor during this podcast. I appreciate him so much more as a human, as a musician, as a father, uh, as a husband. So I hope you guys enjoy part two next week.